Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hello, hi, and welcome. I am your host, Emma Gunnar Wardner, and in my nearly 20-year career as a beauty and health writer, I have interviewed a lot of people, supermodels, entrepreneurs, authors, celebrities, and doctors, and many of these conversations had a real impact on me, and I'd come away feeling inspired, excited, informed, and really empowered, and at the back of my mind, I'd always think, I wish I could just publish the tape so people could really feel that conversation. Well, on this podcast, you get to feel the conversation. I talk with experts, guests, and a few friends who I hope will inspire, inform, and empower you, and maybe also challenge you, whether you're looking for self-help, self-improvement, beauty advice, health insights, business know-how, or just some good old-fashioned life advice and a bit of a laugh. It's all here. Welcome to the show. Here's a question for you. Are you traumatized? Would you even know if you were traumatized or had experienced a trauma? Well, in this episode, we're going to examine trauma at length because my guest is Dr. Tracy Shores and she's a professor in behavior and systems neuroscience and she is an expert in trauma and how it shows up, what it looks like, how it feels and crucially, how to remove and reduce it. Now, when you think of trauma, you may think about PTSD experienced by soldiers once they return from war zones or the trauma related to an extreme event or experience. But I will be curious to know if you change your perception based on this conversation with Tracy. She has written a book called Everyday Trauma, which explores the way trauma can etch itself into our brains and inform how we see the world. And it doesn't need to be one big event or situation. It can be trauma carried from a series of smaller, smaller events accumulated over time. Trauma is able to etch itself into our brain as you remember it again and again, and it can manifest as anxiety, depression, insomnia, and PTSD. Now, if you're a long-time listener, you'll know that we've explored most of those conditions at length with learned experts, but we've never really pulled at the thread of trauma, and there really is no one better than Tracy with which to do so. Now, I would never create a show where you may possibly identify yourself uh, with suffering or having any of the issues that we're talking about without also offering you a solution, and that's exactly why Tracy's contribution is so vital, because as well as identifying trauma and how it appears... She has also created a proven technique for helping to remove and reduce trauma and rumination. Hmm. And just to sit with that word rumination for a moment, I am a really good ruminator. I don't know if anyone else listening is. And while I know that I have a tendency to sit with my negative thoughts and mull them over and over and over and over until at times I'm in a state of pretty high stress and or distress, 
It wasn't until this conversation with Tracy that I understood exactly what was going on and why it's something I should take some considerable effort to stop. But with all that said, I'm going to cut myself a break because once you understand what's really going on, which I hope you'll get a sense of in this podcast and from Tracy's book, which I'll link in the show notes, you will, I hope, have some compassion for yourself if you identify with anything that we discuss in this show. So during our conversation, Tracy and I talk about why everyone is affected by trauma differently and why that's okay, what affects someone else may not affect you, the ways in which trauma can show up, why it's important to sit with your thoughts and analyze whether they are really helping you or not, why women are three times more likely than men to experience PTSD, the way in which trauma can manifest physically in our emotions and in our behavior, why learning coping mechanisms is a priority, plus Tracy outlines her technique for stopping rumination in its tracks. Tracy's insights are genuinely incredible. I really found this conversation incredibly helpful. It is a little bit like, (laughs) I'm a trauma novice, and it was like playing... Uh, against Serena Williams she is the Serena Williams of trauma because she knows everything Um, and so I really hope that I probed Tracy in a way that is helpful for you and uh, if you enjoy this then I really highly recommend you grab a copy of her book which is not only packed full of all her insights but it's very very easy to read so here she is and a trigger warning there is talk about one of the traumas that is discussed in the book and in the show is uh, the trauma of sexual assault so trigger warning just to flag that up but here's the conversation is dr tracy shaw's on the emma gunn show a very warm welcome to the emma gunn show dr tracy shaw's how are you i'm great thank you for asking me um i was so keen to ask you because you have written a book called everyday trauma which uh found its way onto my bookshelf and as soon as i saw it i thought not only do I have to read this, but even before I'd opened the book, I thought I have to speak to this doctor because it's everyday trauma with the subtitle Overcoming Daily Stress, Anxiety and Painful Memories. And I do think, and listeners, I was just saying to this to Tracy before we hit record, I think that we all accumulate these daily stresses, these daily anxieties and these memories. And the memories part is something I hope we can dig into that really shape us and how we see the world. But sometimes it's an accumulation of trauma, which might be coloring the world in a negative way and actually limiting how much we can enjoy life. Would you say that that is something that can happen from all of this accumulation of the anxiety and the stress? Uh, Definitely. (laughs) Yeah. And it's, you know, a lot of times when people think about trauma, they think about the actual experience, you know, the actual event. And so one of the things that I, I wanted to get across in the, in the book is that it's really the the thoughts that keep it alive. Mm. You know, after the event is over, you have these thoughts, these memories, these feelings, and that's kind of what sustains it. And those, those responses change well, they're, they're mediated by the brain. And then by, as a consequence, you know, they change the brain. Well, that, that's really interesting in, in and of itself. But okay, so let's take it to the extreme. Let's talk about an extreme traumatic event. If, we, if you say just then the memories, what we mean when we're talking about a traumatic event, we would probably understand the vocabulary flashbacks right. to that traumatic event. But what if the trauma is being bullied at school, but that's still that memory 
it's not necessarily going to be a flashback, but it's still something you relive all the time. So there's this scale of trauma, but the memories or flashbacks are no less um, affecting the brain or the person. Yeah, I mean, you you could even argue that they're having a, a greater impact to the extent that you've made more of them because they're all memories. You know, we're always remembering or recording kind of what's happening in our lives. And then what we think of as memories is when we recreate them, mm-hmm. when we bring them back. But But they actually still, they already exist, right? They already exist in our brain. We're just trying to access them at particular points going forward. So you know, long, what I would call the kind of chronic traumatic experiences, they're just more of those memories because more of your life was spent in this, you know, situation. So I guess this is where we get into what I call the soup, which is rumination. And I know you've said Mm -hmm. it, and I am a terrible ruminator, really bad, Tracy. And I don't know how it manifests with you, but for me, what it means is that if I am not checking myself, I will ruminate on something and then I will create a false reality. Yeah. And then that is the lens through which I will then experience the rest, the rest of my life. And I'm not doing myself any favors. (laughs) No. And you know, most people that I talk to feel that way. And that was another reason why I felt kind of compelled to, to write the book, but also kind of focus on that because I feel like, Also, that's not something that people, people experience it all the time, but they don't often get the opportunity to kind of like learn about it and and think about, well, why am I ruminating? And and could I stop doing it so often? You know, I had an experience the other, I have a teenage son. Well, he's not even a teenager anymore. He's 22. And um, he was in a car accident on a Saturday night and I was sitting here on the couch and I got the phone the dreaded phone call you know that a parent gets saying I'm on my way to the hospital and and he's fine and I knew he was fine but even though I knew he was fine like between that time when I heard that and he was he went to the hospital they sent him home I couldn't quit thinking about it you know like what happened what if this hadn't happened what if that hadn't happened what if the airbags you know on and on and I was, and that's natural, right? It's natural, but at some point I kind of had to say, wow, you should focus on the fact that he's fine. Yeah. <laughs> you know, instead of thinking of all the like horrible things that could have happened, you know, kind of focus on, on, on the fact, the, the truth, which is that he's fine. So, you know, I think that's the thing is like just kind of watching your own thoughts and then realize how they just like, escape kind of out of your control and just kind of you know reel it back a bit well that's really interesting actually because i've spoken to a lot of people on this podcast about the brain and the brain essentially is its fundamental purpose is to keep us alive to spot danger and to keep us alive so what is this thing that it does where even when you're presented with the facts your son's fine you will then um work through every single worst case scenario um, yeah. is, is, how can that be a, a self-preservation or a protective mechanism? Because it doesn't seem like one. Well, in the moment, you know, it is important to have those thoughts because you have to like make a decision. Mm-hmm. You know, I was thinking, should I get in the car and drive there, you know, to his college or, you know, you think of all the, all the, um, 
things you could do to help the situation. So in the short term, it's actually very useful to have these kind of thoughts and you know try to figure things out. But over the long term, when you keep repeating them, even after the experience is over, then not so useful. Mm-hmm. And, and that's when it becomes a rumination. Like initially, it's just a traumatic, I guess you could say a post-traumatic thought. That's what we call them sometimes, or post-traumatic cognition. Just meaning you're having a thought about the trauma so that you can learn from it and hopefully avoid those kind of experiences in the future by you know changing whatever to, to make it unlikely that it, that would happen again. But a rumination is... It's it's comes from the word to chew, and it's like a cow who chews its cud long after all the nutrients are gone. It just keeps chewing and chewing, and so that's that kind of a thought, right? You're having this thought, then you have it again, and you've already gotten all the information out of that thought, um, but you keep having it. And and ruminations also they have an element of mood attached to them. I like to call them memories laced with mood because you have this memory of an experience or or even just a a thought you've had before but it has like some element of maybe blame or regret or fear you know like these kind of self-related thoughts or aspects of the thought that are not usually negative um yeah, so they start out as kind of useful, but then at some point, no. <laughs> and, and one of the things that I did discuss at, somewhat at length in the book was this idea that when you bring up a memory from the past, irrespective of what it is, good, bad, or whatever, um, neutral, <clears throat> you, you make another memory. Because you bring that memory up from the past, which is just an expression, you reactivate it in your brain. And then that memory gets attached to what's happening to you now. So for example, if I bring up a memory of, you know, my uncle who I really loved, and then I think about him, and then that memory kind of gets attached to me now talking to you Mm -hmm. in some way. Yeah. And so and then later I might be able to say, oh, when I was on Emma's show, I was talking about my uncle. You know, and so that memory now is somewhere in my brain. And the point here is that you're making these memories kind of over and over again, more of them, the more you think about something. And that's the part I think is important to, to know. You don't have to change it necessarily, but just like know that when you're doing it. When I was getting to that part of the book, when I was at that part of the book, I should say, I... Um, the way I was computing it was to think if I go into a Word document on my computer and I've already worked in it and then I put something else in, it's kind of auto-saving. So the original thing with every action that I take, it's kind of auto-saving as it goes. So it felt a little bit like that was a good uh, analogy in terms of the memories in the sense that the original thing is still there, but as you work on it, as you Uh, edit it changes and that was how it felt like the memories and it reminded me of a film called Memento please tell me that you know this film (laughs) I do know the film mostly I know it because people always ask me if I know it (laughs) yes so yeah it was a really good film about this yeah 
a really incredible film. And I guess, I mean, I, I watched it many, many years ago, but essentially you can believe something to be true, but in a different circumstance, or it can be changed pretty easily by situation. You might be better off explaining Memento than me. Well, no, you did a good job. That's exactly how it is. Because I think for some reason... Um, we have this re this feeling that our memories are like recordings, almost like video recordings. Yes. <laughs> and, you know, obviously they're not. That would be impossible. But um, they're so our brain is so good at recreating a memory that we think of them as real. I mean, even for me, I've been studying this for decades now, and I still feel like if I recreated a memory from something I did yesterday... I can kind of see myself, what I was doing yesterday. That's amazing, first of all, <laughs> that the brain could, can even do that in a split second, bring back what I did yesterday. Mm -hmm. But on top of that, it feels real. Mm -hmm. It feels like I just pulled out a videotape from yesterday. And it's, and it's not. It's neurons. It's protein. It's you know electrical activity. That's what's creating it. So of course, first of all, it's not perfect. It can't be. It's just a piece of tissue in your head <laughs> doing it. But on top of that, it's uh, like you say, it's being edited. In fact, we use that term editing or updating for this process of kind of how memories change as we rehearse them. The way you described it like a video is exactly what it is. I think you just assume like if I were to be called up in a court and someone would say, Emma, what happened at this time on this day? I would tell you, and I would believe that what I was telling you was 100% absolutely accurate. But we also know through other, other channels that uh, you can implant memories in people. There's the power of suggestion. The recall is not entirely 100% accurate. So actually, is it helpful for people to understand that what they might remember might not be 100% true or accurate. How do, how can an individual reconcile their memories? Yeah. Um, I do think it's helpful. I think any kind of like knowledge that you have about your own brain, your own body, how it works, how it, you know, responds to your life is, is useful. I mean, I think sometimes like these little aspects kind of take on a life of them their own and then people say oh all memories are, are false well no that's not true <laughs> you know most memories have an element of, of truth a big element of truth in them um but yeah you can be wrong or and you're also seeing it from your perspective mm. you know I, I in the book i talk about this technique called the empty chair do you remember this this was yes. like where um people in therapy uh, who have had a trauma or some other issue that's, you know, bothering them, they describe the experience to the therapist. Well, no, they actually describe it to an empty chair. And they try to imagine the person that they are having this issue with sitting there and they're telling them. And then they switch roles and try to tell the experience from the person who, you know, was in the chair. And I just think that's like a really great example of how our memories seem so objective, I guess you could say, like we think, oh, I remember that perfectly. And then you talk to your, you know, your best friend and she goes, no, that's not how I remember that night. Yes. <laughs> you know, so it's um, just, yeah, helps you kind of learn, like we're all 
we all have a lot in common in how we see things and record events and you know our brains are more or less the same but there are these differences depending on what you were born with how you were raised and then what your experience actually was like how you experienced that whatever event it was yeah what you're bringing to the table in that particular moment in time is going to yeah. influence how you interpret the event and therefore your memory of it yeah and that's anatomical too like there's one part uh in the book where i talk about neurons and you know you could think of neurons in your brain they're all kind of similar you know they have a cell body and they have axons and dendrites and what have you but they 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 look different in different parts of the brain. And so you could think of it kind of like a neighborhood of, of houses. You know, your houses kind of maybe look the same, but some have different color shutters. Some of them have different appliances on the inside. Maybe some, you know, people, different people lived in them and did different things. So even when you get down to the level of the cell, those are your cells, right? Those are the cells that you have molded over your lifetime and they're not like any other cell probably in your brain but they're also not like anybody else's cells exactly okay so actually this brings us to a very neat point I think which is something that I took great comfort in when I was reading the book which is that um we all respond differently to trauma and what I chose to take away from that was and that's okay <laughs> yeah. yeah that's okay because you know yeah it's important to it's really important to know that because I think you can give yourself a very hard time if um look let's face it everyone listening to this probably has a boss or someone that they've worked for or with who they've had a difficult exchange with and some people will brush it off by the time they hit five o'clock and leave the office and make their way home someone else will take it into their weekend and one person isn't right one person isn't wrong necessarily exactly and not only are we different from one another, we're different ourselves as we go through our lives, right? So we, we might have responded totally different as we know when you were like 20 versus 30 versus, you know, 50. And that's also normal to change. And then on top of that, you can actually make yourself change, right? You can make, to some extent, yourself not respond as you might have before, you know, it's another kind of <clears throat> kind of goal that I had with, with the book was saying, like, if you learn a little bit more about how thoughts and memories and feelings arise, the, the time course, because it takes time to go from a thought to, to a memory and then to bring up a feeling in the body that takes time. And if you kind of learn a little bit about the timing of that, you can kind of slow it down a bit. So, you know, you have this thought about something that's really upset you or something that bothers you and it, it brings up this memory of what happened. And then before you know it, you're making plans to do something, mm -hmm. maybe to, you know, yell at somebody or do something or send off an email and, you know, just <laughs> slowing that process down, you go like, I don't need to do that. <laughs> I can just stay with the thought. Mm. I don't have to act on it. Yeah, there's something to be said for um, that delay as, yeah. a, as a coping mechanism, but also as a technique for 
navigating life with a lot less hassle. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, you want to respond, obviously. If it's an emergency, you want to be able to respond, you know, on a dime, so to speak. And, and that's, that's why there, some of these responses are hard to control, because sometimes we, we feel like we have to respond, but maybe we don't have to. And also, I wanted to ask you about the title Everyday Trauma, because that doesn't seem like, in my experience, I don't think I'd heard that expression before. And I also, and again, I think I said at the beginning, I found it quite validating that actually going through life and picking up these anxieties, uh, feeling these stresses, actually, it's okay to use a word like trauma and for it not to mean post-traumatic stress, sort of military level uh, issues having been in a really traumatic situation. It can be about these tiny little things that accumulate in the course of everyday life that might not be, that might not seem all that exciting. Your life might seem on the surface pretty ordinary, but that doesn't mean that you're not accumulating these things and you're not experiencing trauma. Was that the, uh, the intention of the phrase everyday trauma? Yeah, it was. You know, when most people hear the word trauma, they do think of a war. Mm. And, you know, obviously, these days we're reminded every day of how horrifying it is and, and traumatizing actual war is. Um, but most people who even are exposed to trauma, big traumas, don't develop PTSD. And um, so that was part of my goal was to kind of bring that word a little bit down from a clinical mental illness kind of idea. Um, But in addition, I kind of, I distinguished to some extent in the book between two two types of everyday trauma. It's a little bit arbitrary because they do overlap, but one of them would be um, like you were saying, kind of a big event. Maybe you're sexually assaulted or in an earthquake or, um, yeah, some kind of, you know, discrete event that, that you remember, like that, a car accident, you know, that happened. That's the event. And even in that case, as I mentioned earlier, it kind of lives on every day because you think about it for certainly after it happened for maybe for weeks, months, you know, who knows, years could be your whole life that you think, oh, this horrible thing happened to me. And that keeps it going every day, every time you bring it up and you think about it and you have that feeling, maybe fear um, and anxiety. So that's one type of everyday trauma. But then there are these other ones, as you mentioned, that go on kind of every day. And um, like the pandemic is is an example. I mean, come on, we've been doing this for over two years. And, you know, it was, and we, now we even have stages. You know, I was talking to somebody yesterday, like, oh yeah, back in like before the, before the vaccines and after the vaccines and, and, you know, every, we keep thinking it's over, but it's not really over. It's affected almost everybody in the world. So that's having a big effect on people as we know. You know, there's a lot of people suffering now with depression and anxiety. And so those kind of traumas or another example is uh, I've been thinking a lot lately about migration 
And um, I wrote in the book about the Syrian, after the, during the Syrian war, when people were migrating from like Syria to Germany. And this one study, they measured the stress hormones in the hair. And the people that were migrating had all this, you know, hormone in their hair because their adrenal glands were producing all the stress hormone. And then the people who found a home who were able to immigrate, that stress hormone went, went down and it wasn't in their hair as much as, as those who were still trying to find a home. That's happening today. We got millions of people, you know, running, trying to find a home and it's changing their, the biology of their whole body, including their hair. And the hair, just to say for anyone who's wondering why hair, and I think a lot of people might know cortisol, it's usually spit tests or blood tests. It's because the hair is almost like a timeline, isn't it? Yeah. So you can date the, uh, based on how, uh, how quickly hair grows. You can kind of date the occurrence of the, the stress hormone to a particular date and time. Yeah, so what it indicates is that the people are under a lot of stress. They're releasing this hormone from their adrenal glands. It's going throughout their body. And then it's taking, it's so long, the, tra the trauma is so long that it's actually in their hair as it grows over months. You know, so that's just like an example of, of how everyday traumas are, uh, expressed, I guess you could say, in our, in our body. There was one thing I wanted to ask you about predates um, the pandemic, but it's actually the Me Too movement. Mm. Because I think that uh, obviously there's a huge amount of, of trauma, um, a lot of suppressed trauma. But then uh, I was talking to a lot of female friends. I've worked in the media for a long time. A lot of my friends have worked in the media. And there was a common thread in some of our conversations of, well, yeah, like stuff like that happened to me, but I didn't realize it was as bad as it was. And so they were then registering it way after the fact as a traumatic event based on the landscape of the conversation, but they actually hadn't at the time or since internalized it as traumatic. They had just gone, well, they pretty much gone, well, that just is what happens. And I wondered how you perceive that yeah <laughs> yeah that's a big question you know i um worked on sexual violence still do to, to some extent um before the me too movement is when i got kind of interested in, in trying to to examine the trauma of it and partly i did it because when you would talk to women they would often say, but, oh, and this happened, almost like you say, oh, but this happened, you know, when I was a teenager, but I didn't really, I don't know if that really matters exactly, but I, and so I kept hearing these stories, I knew the statistics and what have you, but I was surprised that it hadn't really been studied, and, and in particular, it hadn't been appreciated how much it contributes to, you know, anxiety and depression uh, in adulthood. Um, so we did a study and we, you know, we, we recruited people who had women who'd had sexual violence history. And indeed, you know, even though they weren't diagnosed with PTSD, um, they were still suffering with a lot of these, these symptoms of depression, anxiety, these post-traumatic ruminating, definitely they were ruminating, you know, more about it. 
Um, and they were seeing it. That's one other thing that we discovered that they were like kind of visualizing it, like I mentioned earlier, like a videotape going over it again and again. Um, and then when the Me Too movement happened, I think it, it did help for sure. <laughs> I mean, it helped just acknowledging it and having people say it's sadly normal. And, you know, it happens to a lot of people, mostly women, and it has these repercussions. And so that part, I think, was really useful. There was there there were other aspects that I heard from from women who said they didn't want to think about it, you know, the, particularly for the really bad uh, traumas that had happened, not harassment per se, but, you know, actual sexual assault. They just didn't want they'd kind of put it behind them and they felt like they almost had to think about it or had to even talk about it. Mm -hmm. So I still think it was like, obviously a great change. And I, I guess what I find a little bit now is like, what happened? Like now we don't hear about it so much. And I, that's a little bit disconcerting, you know, cause it's still happening. Yeah. <laughs> Hello. The, it the, is. the nature of the news cycle. But yeah. um, I'm curious about those people who, um, maybe when the Me Too movement happened, realized, oh, I actually had been a victim of those things or those things did happen to me. But, and then they are only now seeing them as a trauma. They're real, they're, I'm wondering if in your work, you realized that people had this delayed reaction when they actually came to realize that maybe what had happened wasn't okay, wasn't something they should push to the back of their mind or ignore or ruminate on in a way that was somehow maybe their fault. I just... I'm curious about this only realizing quite long after the fact that a trauma yeah. had occurred. Yeah, no, it's super common. And again, you know, it's hard to, to make a general statement because everyone responds differently. So some people have these experiences and they're like, yeah, but you know, I brushed it off and I got on with my life, you know, in some circles, they would call that resilience. Now I'm not sure I, yeah. buy into all of that exactly but they d definitely responded to it differently whereas some are you know obviously still still troubled with it um i get i just got an email recently from from a mother whose whose adult daughter you know finally told her about something that happened to her when she was young and um is you know looking for help even many many years mm -hmm. later and 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 you can see the trauma not only affects the person who had it but then their family and maybe their relationships. And so, yeah, get, seeking help is a big one. I think feeling people feeling like they could get some help is mm. really important. Well, you used a word there, which I think is really interesting, this idea of resilience. And I think mm. in the last few years, when the conversations around mental health have become far more open and people have been far more candid with their own experiences, particularly with the rise of social media. This idea of building an emotional resilience is one that uh, I guess it's, um, it's aspirational here, build your emotional resilience. But there is, as you kind of alluded to there, this idea that resilience means brushing it off. Yeah. And, and I guess if you're just brushing something off, you're not, are you learning from it? Or are you just ignoring it, pretending that it didn't happen? It seems like sometimes the way that emotional resilience is sold is that, oh, just get over it, just brush it off. Oh, don't be so ridiculous. But is that actually in the long term an unhelpful strategy? 
Yeah. Um, again, I think it's neither it's neither extreme, you know, because some people are going to want to, and it's natural to suppress a, a really bad experience or even just a semi-bad experience. Like, I'm just not going to think about that anymore. And, and you can do that to some extent. It may, you know, consciously be suppressed, but you might be expressing that memory in other ways, in your mood, in your responses to your current relationships. You know, it's hard to fully appreciate all the other ways that you could express trauma other than thinking about it consciously. But certainly people, some people are very good at, at suppressing what happened. And then the other extreme, of course, is just thinking about it all the time and going over it and talking about it. And now, you know, some therapies are predicated on that idea, like exposure therapy. People are asked to think about what happened, write about it, videotape yourself talking about it and then listen to it. And in, in the care of a therapist, you know, not necessarily just on your own. And it's, it's hard to do, you know, a lot of people drop out. They're like, I don't want to think about it, but it does help to some extent to kind of go over the memory. And then we would call it extinguish the start to extinguish the memory. In other words, learn that the um, trauma is over, mm-hmm. you know, learn that it's safe. It's kind of like, like on an example would be when I talked about my son having the car, car accident, like fully appreciating, like he's okay. Mm-hmm. And, and not always kind of going back to, you know, what could have been or what actually happened in the case of a, of a, of a trauma. So I think it's kind of like finding the medi- happy medium. And in the book, you know, I also talk about techniques that people could use to kind of build resilience, not necessarily after the fact, you know, after something happens, you're like, oh my, I have to go get some help or take some medications or whatever, but always kind of building resilience through practices that are available to all of us, meditation, exercise, you know, things that keep us, keep our minds healthy, keep our minds active. And, and yeah, just not thinking, thinking about it consciously at times, but then also learning when not to think about it. And I do want to come on to those because you've actually got some great techniques, but I wanted to, uh, on the back of the book, actually, it says, Trauma can etch itself into your brain as you remember it again and again, manifesting as anxiety, depression, insomnia, and PTSD. And when I read that, it reminded me of a few years ago, and long-time listeners will know this, I hit rock bottom, went into therapy. And when I went in, I said, I don't have any coping mechanisms, so I just feel battered by the world and by everything that happens. I have no emotional toolkit. And so what I wanted to do was to build that emotional toolkit and to build those coping mechanisms. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring at blue You can design a one of a kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. 
That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Because what was happening and what I uh, saw in the book as well is this idea of, I think someone else has asked you this, trauma begetting trauma. So if every single thing affects you in quite a big way, and at no point are you coming back to a decent kind of true north or a balanced state, it's just trauma after trauma after trauma, it's going to really impact your life. And so these coping mechanisms are really vital um, even if you just, if you're listening to this and you're thinking, well, I don't experience trauma, but life can be pretty, it can build up. These tiny little things can accumulate. And so these coping mechanisms are really important, aren't they? Definitely. And I, you know, sometimes I wish I had learned more of these when I was younger, because you can learn them. You know, sometimes we only learn them when, like you say, you hit rock bottom and then you go and say, oh my gosh, I need to learn these things. But um, learning them when you're young, I, I often talk to, to my students, you know, who my undergraduate students are in their 20s and I say, wow, I wish I had learned these techniques when I was your age. I could have saved myself a lot of suffering. And I could tell from their faces, they're like, what techniques? <laughs> tell me, <laughs> you know, because they're, they haven't had all these other traumas that you will have if you live long enough. You know, people what you love will die or you'll get an illness and, um, you know, things will happen. And you have to build up these these mental skills that I think sometimes people just aren't necessarily exposed to when they're young. They might have heard, oh, I should, you know, sleep better or eat well or exercise, but they haven't really learned, like, how can I actually learn to think differently about my own thoughts? You know, because, how can I, yeah. how can I learn about them? Because I think the idea, like I said, the quote from the back of the book about trauma can etch itself into your brain. We can also think, fall into this sort of kind of false sense of security that, oh, as you get older, you just learn to brush things off and you, and actually that goes against what you say about etching into your brain because it doesn't, the etching doesn't get shallower. It gets deeper as you get older, if you don't implement these coping mechanisms, right? Definitely. Yeah, I was actually even thinking about that earlier today. I was thinking, you know, when you're younger, for some reason, you have this idea that everything is tumultuous, you know, things are happening, and you're trying to find maybe love and your career and all these things. And you have this idea that it's all going to slow down and kind of mellow out. (laughs) And then when you actually do become older, you're like, no, that's not (laughs) how it goes at all. (laughs) And I wish, like, again, someone had said, like, it's not all going to settle down. And that's normal, first of all. And second of all, you can kind of prepare yourself, you know, for it. 
so that when these events do happen, you have some like tools in your toolbox that can help you. And actually, I know we touched on PTSD, but I wanted to ask you about, well, well it's sort of a, a, uh, a question about women and mental health. First of all, this idea that we alluded to that PTSD is something that only affects people who've formerly been in war zones and have experienced the, uh, the ravages of war. And But actually, I believe women are three times more likely than men to experience PTSD. And then furthermore, the majority of the research around mental health, particularly in this neighborhood, if you like, of trauma and PTSD and anxiety and depression, most of the research was done on men. So how can women uh, do their best <laughs> to uh, navigate this quite, uh, what can be a difficult landscape in terms of yeah. their mental health? I mean, luckily it is changing. And... Um, I was just speaking with a colleague actually yesterday about it. And, you know, it's been interesting when I first started kind of looking at sex differences in the brain and not that many people were talking about it. And in particular, this idea that women were more likely to have post-traumatic stress disorder, suffer from depression, anxiety. And yet when you looked at the literature, all the studies were done primarily in men. Now, you know, that's kind of understandable because a lot of the early research happened in, in veterans associations. So that would be people who came home from, from war and they were mostly men. Um, and then in laboratory situations, those were mostly, you know, done in males. And there was no real appreciation for the differences and how like a female brain is quite different because of the hormones and, and everything else that, that she's exposed to throughout her lifetime. So about, I don't know, five or 10 years ago, there, there's a new insistence on using, at least in the United States, and on testing both males and females in laboratory studies, and also a little bit more pressure to use women in human studies you know, some studies didn't want to use women because of, they might be pregnant and they didn't want to like, yeah. So there's that issue, which is also understandable. Um, but I would say the good news is that there's much more research being done now on, on the female brain in particular and in women and a greater appreciation for the fact that women are the most likely to be diagnosed with, um, with PTSD. And, you know, part of this is because well, I think it is, it's kind of hard to prove, but I think some of it is because of some of these sexual, uh, sexual harassment, sexual violence that happens to, to so many women, particularly when they're young, mm -hmm. you know, so it happens mostly to young women. And then of course, they're kind of like living with that, that trauma. So yeah, it's, it's complicated in a way. Um, but I'm very excited to see uh, a lot more research on on women now and just way more appreciation for for differences in in the male versus female brain. 
I'm scanning my notes here because I made a note a little while ago about um, hormones and the fact that, I mean, you said uh, women weren't necessarily used in research in case they might be pregnant and that could influence the outcome, but um, created a lot of episodes on this podcast about hormones with various doctors and they have a huge amount of influence. How much influence do they have in this space? They are so powerful. I mean, that's one thing you have to like really wrap your head around is how powerful hormones are. I think sometimes we get this idea there's, oh, these hormones. <laughs> no, they're like super powerful. They call cells to grow. And, and that's why we release them when we're pregnant to build a fetus. And, you know, so they're, they're super powerful and um, they definitely have an effect. In fact, one of the things I, I have tried to stress is the fact that not only are males different from females or men different from women in, in some of these respects, um, but women are different across their lifespan. You know, so a woman who was, would respond to stress or, or trauma differently before puberty versus after puberty versus during motherhood, just having offspring changes the stress response. So we change too. I mean, men obviously change across their lifespan, but not as distinctly as women because women go through menstrual cycles, they get pregnant, you know, they have postpartum, postmenopausal uh, changes. And each of those stages is, you know, sufficiently different in, in terms of how that, how your body responds to, to stressors in life. So that's, that's important to know. That is important to know. Now, actually, yeah. before we, we get, before we get into these techniques that you've got for really helping, I wanted to ask you uh, about how uh, trauma can show up. So I, and you can tell me whether this is correct or whether this is wrong, but essentially I was doing some research and came back that there were essentially, there are physical symptoms, emotional symptoms or emotional changes and also there are different behaviors that may all be signs when combined of trauma. So physically, it could be that you're always tired, you're always getting headaches, you find it difficult to get to sleep. Um, emotional changes will be feeling hypersensitive or disconnected or feeling hopeless. And the behaviors will be becoming quite avoidant, um, not taking pleasure in any activities, difficult relating to people and um, not being able to make small talk, feeling again, very disconnected. And when I went through all of these, I thought about all of the conversations I've had on this show about the way that anxiety and depression show up and the way that this is just how a lot of people are responding right now to modern life. And so does trauma just basically just come with the territory of living these days? Um. Is this a yes or no question? <laughs> uh, I, would, I guess I would lean towards yes. I mean, <laughs> I've met anyone who hasn't had any trauma. Mm. You know, again, it somewhat comes down to the definition of trauma. But certainly if you take the way that I'm been talking about it, then yes, of course, it comes with everyday uh, life. And it doesn't always have to be debilitating. You know, one of the things I think that's also kind of good, good to know about mental health and disorders is that in order to be diagnosed with a disorder, it has to disrupt your life. You know, it has to make it so you, you can't 
can't go to work, you can't go to school, you can't take care of your children, you can't take care of yourself. And that's, that's important because a lot of people have trauma and then they, they're still able to function. Like all of us have some kind of trauma and, um, but we're, you know, able to, to function. So I think it's that, that's the distinction, you know, where you get kind of get in, get into trouble where you actually can't even do what's best for yourself. Yeah, because one of the things that's definitely happened is this conversation around mental health has opened is that we've started to pathologize or catastrophize normal emotions. And so what I'm glad that we've done here is we we are talking about trauma, but we're not now going to make this a word that everybody is using just to describe a bad day. Exactly. I didn't want, and that was one thing I was a little bit afraid of with that term is that, you know, we, everything is not traumatic. Things are stressful, as you as you know. So I talk about in the book the difference between stress. You know, stress is like it it perturbs things that makes you uncomfortable, but you may not even necessarily remember <clears throat> stressful experiences. Um, it doesn't really wound you, you know, as a as a trauma will by you know in you know making these strong memories or these responses. The other thing that, you know, you mentioned these different kind of categories of responses and, you know, some of this is arbitrary as humans, we have this really sophisticated language. And so we always, always like try to like dichotomize um, experiences into like plus or minus, yes or no, positive, negative, or even more categories, you know, like in, in the case of emotions, feelings, memories, thoughts, T to some extent, those are arbitrary. Those are human designed, you know, distinctions to help us talk and think about our, ourselves. But in the body, in the brain, it's not like that. <laughs> you know, it's not divided up into little categories of thoughts versus memories. And I think sometimes people think that's how the brain is. They think, oh, yeah, you know, memories are in the hippocampus and my feelings are in the amygdala. And <laughs> it's not like that. They're, these are um, systems. They're kind of, sometimes they're called feedback systems. So, you know, one area of the brain or network might respond, and then that causes another part to respond in turn, which sends a signal into the body. And so they're, uh, you know, my point is that they're interconnected and they're dynamic. Mm -hmm. You know, they're always changing. You can't peek in there with a microscope and like take a picture <laughs> and know how somebody's thinking. I mean, because they've already moved on, you know, to the next thought. And so I think it's important to know that. And also that these feelings and thoughts and memories that come back, they are, they can be somewhat separated. Um, so for example, I, I talked in the book about a study where um, someone who had a hippocampus that didn't work, which we think of as involved in kind of conscious recollection of memories, was compared to someone whose amygdala wasn't working. And they had different responses to a stressor. Mm -hmm. You know, they, one of them could consciously recollect the experience, but they couldn't, their body didn't respond. And conversely, one person, their body resp uh, responded and they couldn't remember what happened. And so they're interconnected, but they also have different kind of roles to play in our everyday experience so that we can, you know, reminisce maybe about something that happened or tell a friend or respond appropriately. Um, 
Yeah. So I think it's just important to realize that they're not distinct processes and they overlap. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when we look at, particularly most of the studies I've done have been with, with women, but not necessarily all of them. But when I when we look at people who had a lot of trauma and they say that they're thinking about it a lot, those are the same people who also say they have a lot of depressive feelings in their body. They have a, more anxiety about the future and, and they're ruminating more. Now, conversely, the good news is the people who aren't thinking about those things as often, you know, have less of those other responses. And rumination, I guess, is is the key, isn't it? It's the sort of thing that uh, I definitely kept thinking about again and again. It's just, it's something that you might not necessarily realize you're doing because it's, I could be doing it right now. I could <laughs> be doing habit. it. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it is causing, it, it's having a real effect. And so you've come up with this really quite brilliant way of, um, well, you you explain it. It's the, the way you can basically remap your brain so that it gets out of this ruminating cycle, which as we know, over time, not only creates a false reality, but it's just, it's going to limit limit life if you allow it to become the filter through which you see the world. Yeah. You know, I actually developed this program for for somewhat different reasons. I developed it based more on my neuroscience research. This, we had these findings about these new neurons in the brain and how they were affected by uh, exercise and mental training. So when I first started thinking about developing this program, it was more kind of based on, on my neuroscience background, but um, come to find out it actually helps with ruminations more than I would have ever imagined. And yeah, it just wasn't something I necessarily would have, would have predicted. So basically this program, it, I call it MAP training. So it stands for mental and physical training. And the idea is to train your brain mentally with something that's difficult to do because that's, you know, mental training. And in this particular case, it's, I uh, use meditation. This is a kind of a form of meditation that's kind of hard to do. If you've ever done it, you know, it's um, sitting in silence and counting your breaths. And as you sit in silence, trying to count your breath, focusing your attention, um, thoughts pop in. You know, and before you know it, you're thinking about like what happened yesterday and what you're going to have for dinner. And you're like, hmm, I don't think I'm concentrating anymore. <laughs> and so then you notice I'm not paying attention anymore. You remember that you were supposed to pay attention and then you refocus your attention. And that's, it sounds kind of simple, but it, you know, if you've done it, it's not simple. And what you realize is that you have these thoughts all the time. Some of them are ruminating thoughts. Some of them are just intrusive memories. Some are not even that interesting. But it's very hard to to maintain your attention over some period of time. So it's not super onerous. It's 20 minutes of sitting, meditation in silence, followed by like slow walking meditation, which is kind of similar. You just focus your attention on, on your feet as you walk super slowly. But again, the idea is to kind of learn a little bit more about your own thoughts 
by sitting in silence and listening to them and trying to focus attention. And then it's followed immediately by aerobic exercise. So by aerobic, I mean uh, oxygen. So aerobic means oxygen. So that means exercise that requires oxygen. Now for most people, that means getting your heart rate up over a, at least 100 beats per minute, maybe 120. So it's not a stroll down the street. <laughs> it's, you know, pretty intense exercise, but the point is to get oxygen into your brain. And the brain uses like 20% of the oxygen you breathe in, even though it only weighs about a two, a couple percentage points in terms of body weight. So the brain loves oxygen. That's what that's, you know, it needs oxygen to make new connections, to use electrical current, to produce thoughts, et cetera, et cetera. So the idea is that you, you engage in this mental training and then immediately after you flood the brain with oxygen and you can do it any way you want, you know, running, spinning, swimming. I have like an exercise kind of dance exercise program that I like personally to do, but you know, it doesn't really matter as long as you get the heart rate up. And so we've, and it's only an hour. The whole program is one hour. And we've done a, a number of studies uh, with different people, people who are severely depressed, people who experience sexual violence. Uh, I did a study with, with homeless mothers who had addiction issues. I did a study with medical students. I just finished a study with, with teachers during the pandemic. And in all cases, they report less rumination, like a lot less rumination. So, <laughs> you know, I don't know exactly why it works so well, but I don't know if it matters. You know, it just really helps. And then when people ruminate less, then they have less of these other symptoms. Um, I love the idea of this. And regular listeners will know that at the beginning of the year I did, um, and I charted it in one of the episodes that we do called 12 Habits, where I learned Vedic meditation. So that's 20 minutes using a mantra. And I also really like to exercise. So in the morning, I get up. The first thing I do is I prop up my pillows and I do my meditation for 20 minutes in bed. So when I was reading the book, I thought, kind of already doing what Tracy suggests. <laughs> I don't do the slow exercise, but then I go straight into weight training or I go for a long walk. And the thing I've noticed, and I su suppose specifically about the meditation, by having this mantra that I'm constantly repeating, is to begin with, it was definitely rumination. And so your book has actually been wonderful for me because it's kind of helped me articulate and realize the process that's been happening since I started in January. So now when I am in meditation, I maybe lose that slippery little mantra a bit. And then I start thinking, actually the thoughts that I'm allowing in are helpful. They're not mm -hmm. rumination. They are things like it might be something on my to-do list, but I'm definitely thinking about them in a way that I think, oh, no, yep, okay, that's really helpful. And then I park it and I bring the mantra back in. So when I was reading the book, I thought, I can so see why this works. Yeah. That's so cool to hear. I, I, I totally love that because, yeah, it's hard to kind of describe that feeling, um, that transition, because it's not just about the concentration. It's not just about the silence. It's more about um, yeah, learning your own thoughts and not trying to suppress them 
or even necessarily change them, just like seeing them from the outside, which, you know, you'd think as a neuroscientist, I would have done this years ago (laughs) because I studied them, but I hadn't really ever sat and, and like listened to my own thoughts or tried to really understand their content. Um, yeah, so I love that you said that because I, I do, I think it's, it's, you know, some of the people that we've p- provided this program to say something similar, like, you know, one woman said, you know, I never thought about a thought before, or another woman said, you know, I realized that I was talking about, uh, it's actually in the book too, this woman who she had HIV and, and she, she lives in Newark and she had become infected in some house when she was young, like a teenager, I think. And she said, every time I would walk by that house, I would remember what happened. And then I would say like, why did I go in that house? And if I hadn't gone in that house and, and she just really she said, I realized I don't have to do that. I don't have to follow my memory into that house. And it was just like, just learning a little bit more about her own thoughts, I guess, gave her this, you know, insight. Mm, it, it's very, very interesting. And it's really uh, wonderful that the, the mapping or yeah, like you say, the, the different techniques. So it's this 20 minutes of meditation, counting your breaths. It's the slow walking. How is the slow walking significant as this bridge between the meditation and the aerobic exercise? Well, one, one reason is because it kind of is a, tra- a nice transition, you know, because when you're sitting in silence for that long, your heart rate is super low, your feet might even kind of fall asleep a little bit. <laughs> so you want to, you don't want to just jump up and start like exercising. So mm-hmm. it, for one thing, it's kind of like a nice transition into the aerobic exercise. But the other reason I actually like uh, walking meditation is it's also something that we do all the time without thinking, which is walk. Mm-hmm. We're walk, 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 always in a hurry to get somewhere and do something, right? And so it just forces you to say, wow, what about my feet? You know, what about my feet? Have I thought about my feet lately? And not to like be ridiculous about it, but just be like, wow, if I could just focus my attention on my feet and every time I start to wander away and think about other things, I recognize, oh, I'm not thinking about my feet anymore. And I bring it back to my feet. And, you know, that's, that's the technique, Mm -hmm. but it's also something that you could take anywhere. Yeah. You know, so sometimes if I'm feeling like a little anxious or a little stressed or feeling like, uh, yeah, I'm just not, not focused. I'll just do a little walking meditation. You know, somewhere in the hallway or something, just five, 10 minutes, just enough to kind of slow everything down, you know, bring your brain back in, in sync with your body and get rid of some of those extraneous thoughts. So, yeah, I think it's just, you know, an, another tool. And how regularly do you have to do this training? Is it a daily effort or is it a couple of times a week? No. Uh, in fact, my one of my graduate students is doing her dissertation defense today. And she's presenting this data that we collected with um, during the pandemic. Because we knew the teachers, K through 12 teachers were gonna be super stressed out. It was right before school was gonna start. There was no vaccine, it was summer of 2020. And so we provided this intervention online uh, to teachers who said they were experiencing a lot of stress and trauma 
related thoughts. And um, they only did it once a week for six weeks. And we had, you know, kind of the same results I'd published before, less anxiety, less depression, less rumination. They said they were sleeping better. Um, yeah, there's quite a uh, more self-compassion was up. And the, and the interesting thing about this study, actually, one of the interesting things is that we also had um, teachers who didn't take the course, who didn't participate. And they got more anxious and more stressed and depressed as the summer went on, as they were having to go back, you know, to, into the classroom potentially. So not only does this program seem to help with things that happened maybe in the past, but in anticipation really of things that are gonna happen in the future, which we, we can't know what they are. It's making me think about quality of thoughts and just to go off on an ever so slight tangent, have you ever done flotation therapy? <laughs> you know what? I have, but it was so long ago. I, this is in, I was in graduate school, so we're talking 80s. <laughs> and I lived in Los Angeles, and somebody was going to pay me. I didn't have any money. So they said, well, I'll pay you some money to sit in this flotation, to lay in this flotation tank in like Beverly Hills once a week for somebody's <laughs> dissertation. Um, yeah, so I have done it. And yeah. I haven't done it since. In fact, I would be curious to go back now and see how I would think about it. So the reason I mention it is because I did it in my early 20s and <laughs> it was the most bizarre experience. I remember trying to explain it to someone a little while afterwards and they said, well, the thing is, is that your body doesn't know what to do when it's in a flotation experience because for anyone who doesn't know when you're in a flotation tank and the water's full of epsom salts your body there's no, it's like being in space because there are no forces on your body so all of the noise that's normally going on in your muscles and your joints and your skeleton to hold you up it, it's allowed to be quiet because it doesn't have to be working mm. and i said after my first session i have never had so many thoughts than I, as I had in that first session. And I think because my brain was trying to make sense of what was going on. And I, I put it down to the fact that so much of my body was able to switch off and didn't have to be working and communicating. And then it was about three or four sessions in, and I think I only managed about five sessions because it was quite expensive. Um, <laughs> yeah. But it was about four or five sessions in that I reached this nirvana of, the, not only was I able to completely switch off but the thoughts that did come into my head were good quality a little bit like what I was saying with the meditation when they do come in it feels like they're coming in for a reason and they're coming in to be helpful is that also something that uh, people if they're listening to this and they want to try the map training that they may experience yeah I think so and you know one of the things that um I mean it's hard to know some people when they do it they really get into it right and they want to like go meditate in a cave for the for weeks on end or become, you know, Zumba instructors. And, you know, so some people get really, really excited and, and really take off. I think most people kind of do it, you know, once or twice a week and that's like enough and, and they don't have, have time to really go to kind of to that next level. You know, I would say for me, when I first started meditating too, I, I was one of those people who like did it a few times and was like, I really want to like explore this. And I went on a few of these like week silent long ret silent retreats for like a week on end. Oh wow. Or <laughs> you don't talk and you just face the wall and it's whew, hard, grueling. But there were a few times I would say when I had kind of that feeling too. 
just like a, it was a qualitatively different state of mind. I wouldn't call it necessarily nirvana or self-actualization <laughs> or anything like that, but it was qualitatively different. But I do think to get to that, yeah, you have to, that's a level of commitment. I think that most people probably, probably don't have. Yeah, I was, Tracy, I was definitely exaggerating when I was, when I was in a flotation tank in Clapham in Southwest London, I did not reach Nirvana, but it's probably the closest I've got. <laughs> I, I went to sleep is my recollection. <laughs> yeah. And I bet it was very restful. Um, very restful. They had to come and get me out. That's what I remember. Yeah. Knock on the door. Your time yeah. is up. Um, speaking of time being up, our time together has come to an end, but what I always try to do with these conversations on the show is to give listeners and listeners, I hope that you find this to be the case, um, information that, uh, that empowers you and allows you to know yourselves better. And as I said, when this book came across my desk, I knew instantly that I had to read it. And it is so helpful in understanding yourself, getting to know yourself, having compassion for yourself, but I think also all of those things for other people too. And I am so delighted that you were able to come on the show and talk about it. And I will obviously be putting the link to the book in the show notes so people can find it themselves. But Tracy, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you. I had a wonderful time talking to you. You made me think about a lot of things and I appreciate that. Oh, thank you. Well, come back anytime. Maybe we can do this again. Okay, I would love to. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to that episode of The Emma Gunn Show. I do hope you enjoyed it. I appreciate your time hugely. If you did enjoy it and you never want to miss an episode, then please do hit the subscribe button wherever it is that you are streaming and downloading this episode. It's also where you get the opportunity to leave a five-star review and a rating for how you feel about the show. And I'd be so grateful if you wouldn't mind leaving one. If you want to get in touch with me, email me at thebeautypodcast at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you. Or you can DM me on Instagram and Twitter where I am at Emma Guns. If you fancy chatting to me and thousands of other fellow listeners of the podcast, then click the link to join the Facebook forum. The link to join is in the show notes, which can be found wherever it is that you are streaming and downloading this episode. You have to answer a couple of questions, but we cannot wait to see you there. Come over and join the conversation. Thank you so much for listening. I will see you on the next one. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.